0: Well, ladies and gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? Do not
0: touch that podcast dial. This is not Jonah Goldberg, but it is The Remnant. I'm David French filling in for Jonah. And uh, you're not going to want to miss this conversation because it's going to, uh, what is the phrase the kids use these days? Catch all the smoke. (laughs) We're going to talk about all of the contentious stuff today. Um, I've got a great guest, my friend Jonathan Rauch. We've actually talked before haven't we uh john on the on the remnant podcast when i filled in for yeah, jonah I, we did the constitution of knowledge yes yes well i was just about to say jonathan Rausch, author of the constitution of knowledge a defense of truth that we talked about and and we actually i remember that conversation well because we got into the perennial conversation that you see online um everywhere right now sort of Who's more dangerous, the illiberal left and the illi- or the illiberal right, and you used an analogy that I keep using and attribute to you every time of the difference between cancer and a heart attack <laughs> um, where one side essentially is a, a, is a cancer working its way through institutions, the other side, however, um, is capable of inflicting sort of sudden death as in a heart attack on our political community. Um, I found that helpful ever since. And it's generated no end of, uh, controversy and commentary in the dispatch and remnant community. So maybe this conversation will be as memorable as that conversation. Oh God, I hope not. (laughs) Well, it could be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should talk about farm subsidies and agricultural regulation. (laughs) Don't you ever get tired of the controversies?
0: Um, I, you know, I do actually get tired of the controversies at the same time. I kind of have this feeling and maybe it's just, I don't know if it's masochism or what that you can't abandon the discussion of the most controversial things to the loudest and most extreme voices. We got to be able to have conversations about even the most contentious stuff. Um, even when it results in unpleasant backlash, Because somebody's going to be talking about it. And, and,
1: oh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. What gets me dispirited sometimes, it'll take us into the meat of our conversation. But the things that we're choosing to center our controversies on, right? You know, it used to be war and peace and the essentials of foreign policy. And for a brief moment, maybe in Ukraine, it is. But, you know, we talked about things like, Important things that really changed the world, yeah. you know, everything from, from tax rates and foreign policy. And, and now we're in the pre call, you were instructing me on the latest doings of someone named Hemingway, <laughs> who is famous <laughs> for being famous and saying shit. And everyone's talking about that. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. You, you know, I remember not to do the back in my day kind of thing. I, I remember the very first political debate I attended at college. It wasn't at my college. I went to Vanderbilt. I was I was going to school in a small Christian college in Nashville called Lipscomb University. Uh went to a debate at Vanderbilt that was packed. It was packed. And I went to see it because w- one of my favorite professors at Lipscomb was a participant in the conversation and one of the core issues at in play was the deployment of the MX missile. Mm-hmm. Do you remember oh, that? I remember uh, well. Debate back yep. in the day. Yeah. So you had a thousand plus students to hear a substantive discussion about American policies of nuclear deterrence at the height of the cold war. Um, it was I, I, there. It was incredibly memorable. I remember it was incredibly tense and it was incredibly consequential. Because we were talking about the kinds of policy decisions that could be seen as provocative or perhaps appeasing of a um, foreign power that presented not just an existential threat to sort of uh, the American constitutional republic, but an existential threat to Western civilization itself in the event of global thermonuclear of war. Course. And you and
1: I grew up in the era, the conversation, for example, was about communism how to deal with it. You know, this is a system that probably killed, what, 50 million, 100 million people and had tens of thousands of nuclear warheads aimed at us. We're we're both glad it's gone. but, But I still remember my equivalent of your formative event was when I was a freshman at Yale going to a debate between George McGovern and William F. Buckley. Um, and mm. as you can imagine, the place was filled to the rafters. And as you can imagine the the students, um, uh, were pretty much all on the side, but as you can imagine, it was also a, a pretty serious, contentious and very interesting session talking about real stuff. And now instead, so much of, so much of the dialogue is culture wars all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really, and, and I think, you know, it puts us in a quandary because I'm having this, um, Alarm going off in my head, which is hypocrisy alert, hypocrisy alert. Are we about to become part of the problem or perpetuate the problem by the conversation that we're about to have? Um, and I, I I'll be honest with you, John. I struggle with this when i when I'm thinking about what to write about. I've written a ton about Ukraine, uh, just a ton about the the uh, the conflict, both uh, at the dispatch and at the Atlantic. I've written extensively about Ukraine. And, um, the state of the war, the possibility of a tactical nuclear exchange, um, the possibility of defeating Russia, or at least, um, inflicting such severe losses on Russia that it, that it, it functions in essence as a, as a defeat. Um, and yet, you know, if you focus on Russia and Ukraine, it often feels as if a substantial part of the national conversation proceeds in a culturally consequential way um without the participation of reasonable voices who have something to contribute and and so it's it's a sort of always a back and forth i mean do i focus on the thing that is the the main thing or is it do i focus on the thing that is the topic of conversation and often the main thing and the topic of, of conversation in american politics are two different things
1: well I'll tell you how i try to deal with that and th- this does bring front and center an article on on the gender ideology issues that I recently wrote. Um, but recently I've been trying to handle that by, first of all, um, in my inbox, if I see the latest thing by, you know, it could be a very good journalist, people we, both, we all know, but if, if, right. if it's more about the culture wars, what we're teaching in schools about race or pronouns or whatever, I skip it usually. I just figure I've got enough mm-hmm. on that. Um, the second thing is I look for pieces like yours, which when they enter those debates have something constructive to say. Uh, I've I've pretty much decided that if the point of the thing is just to alert me to the dangers of the other side, whoever that may happen to be, I don't have time for it. Um, And then what I've tried to do, I'm not a culture warrior. My writing has stayed mostly in the realms of policy and politics, and and I especially try to find constructive things to say. Um, And that's part of the reason why I have never until, I guess, few days ago, published on the debate on gender ideology and transgender. And there are a few reasons why I decided to, to break my silence. Um, and one of them is I thought maybe I could intervene constructively in a debate that has gone right. pretty sadly downhill. So, you know, I used to say that, that the gay marriage debate is not, in fact, a debate between bigots and perverts. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's an argument uh, over some pretty serious questions about the purpose of marriage and the nature of human sexuality and the role of government and the law. And I, I see the right. transgender debate going down the same road that the, the gay debate went down in the '90s, which is increasing domination by extremists on both sides who are really there to fire up the troops. Um, Instead of figure out a way through some of the really fundamentally non-cultural issues that are at stake here, like what do we mean by sex and gender? What do we do about minorities? How right. do we balance minority rights against majority rights? How do we balance privacy interests
0: against dignity interests? Really tough stuff. Well, let's let's do some table setting because um, I, I thought your piece, and uh, which we'll we'll walk through and we'll link in the show notes, was incredibly helpful contribution to the debate. So, but let's do some history and table setting about your, which I thought was very helpful in your piece. You talked about a lot of your own history in the gay rights movement and your own participation. In particular, you've really been a, um, a bridge building voice between those people who have expressed concerns about religious liberty and free speech and those people who have long advocated for um, more recognition of LGBT rights in the public square. And so could you kind of give us a little bit of your history in in this debate itself? And then we'll move from there into sort of how you see some similar themes playing out right now in the gender identity debate.
1: Well, I'm about to turn 62. I am a white, cisgender, homosexual male. Uh, I'm very much a a member of my generation. We're the post-Stonewall generation. We did not have to do the hard work of originally coming out, being fired from our jobs, uh, being wiretapped by the FBI. Um, We were excluded from the military and from security clearances and a lot of stuff like that. But by the time I was 13, the American Psychiatric Association was no longer defining me as mentally ill, for example. So I came along in the second wave, and the second wave was uh, we now had organized groups like Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD and a bunch of others, and we were working in the courts. But what some of us saw unfolding in the 90s was what we viewed as a takeover of uh, what was then called Lesbian and Gay Civil Rights Movement. We didn't have LGBTQIA plus at the time. Um, What we saw is the takeover of that movement, or the attempted takeover of that movement, by some radical leftists. People who had their own agenda, which was largely anti-religious, it was very absolutist in its treatment of religion. Um, uh, Often it felt a kind of contempt for religion, ignoring the fact that one of the pillars of gay civil rights were metropolitan community churches, our churches. It expected and valorized a certain kind of radical leftism. It imported issues that we thought were extraneous, like abortion. And it bothered us that that this group of leftists, many of them coming out of academia and left-wing activist circles, were representing themselves as the spokespeople for the homosexual population in America, because they weren't spokespeople. They were self-appointed spokespeople, but the gay and lesbian population was hugely diverse. 25% of us voted for George W. Bush in 2000. Um, And and we, a group of us, I mean, an informal group, I mean, a lot of different people, no formal connection. Uh, You've heard of some of them, like Andrew Sullivan and maybe Bruce Bauer, and there are others you may not have heard of who are also super important, uh, Dale Carpenter, uh, David Bowes. We said, you know, we need to try to take this thing back. For a few reasons. One is that the radical left is not representative. Another is that they're simply wrong. The stuff they're demanding is 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 not good ideas. And the third is that this is setting back our movement because we're not a radical movement. All we really want is equality. We want the same things other people want. We want to be able to serve in the military and raise our children and get married. There's nothing radical about any of that. So by misportraying us as wanting to, you know, overturn the bourgeois. Oppressive sexual order, or whatever. Um, they were doing no one any favors. Um, so we set about doing that, uh, writing all kinds of stuff through every available channel that we could find over a period of years. Uh, we started a group called the Independent Gay Forum. We had listservs. We published a book, anthology. And the goal there, you know, we didn't kid ourselves we could change the world or even that that many people would listen, but we did succeed in establishing. An intellectual center Mm -hmm. that split off the gay rights movement as a civil rights agenda from the radical left, anti capitalist, what was then the equivalent of the woke movement. And that gave the country and ourselves a way to think of ourselves that did not import all of that extra left wing baggage. So I'm looking at that and I'm looking at today and I'm looking at a debate over gender, um, transgender, but also gender more largely, which. I think is eerily similar to the kind of um, uh, political baggage we saw in the 90s, except it's farther gone. And my article says you got to do the same thing that was done a generation ago. you got to start splitting off the radical gender agenda from the mainstream transgender equality agenda. Sorry, that was too
0: long. I'll be shorter. I was uh I was struck when I re- I I reviewed Andrew Sullivan's um it's not really a memoir it's more of a, a collection of his essays selected collection of his essays stretching over his 30 plus years uh of writing and I was really struck by his essays in the early 90s and some in the 1980s about how, that the intensity of the anger directed at him by various LGBT groups, um, the fury—I mean, the, the the way in which he was protested, the way in which he was attacked—really um, illustrates exactly what you're talking about. And so here I am; I'm sort of in—I'm um, just just becoming sort of aware of Andrew Sullivan and just becoming aware of the debate in general. And wasn't at all aware of the intensity with which people like Andrew and I don't know if you had the same experience. We're getting attacked from the radical left, even as you're pushing forward for gay civil rights. Uh, you know, on with one hand, it's you're pushing forward with gay civil rights. On the other hand, you are getting, you're under unrelenting, withering attack from a much more radical left. And reading Andrew's book and rereading some essays that I do remember, it brought that all back. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating history that I think, you know, especially a lot of of younger folks probably don't have any awareness of at all. Well, Andrew got the worst of it. Uh, He's a more confrontational
1: writer than most of the rest of us. I'm a very Amalian writer. I'm, you know, always always looking to be constructive. Um, Andrew is willing to be pretty fierce and confrontational, but he also became a symbol to the left of kind of the Mm. first and most prominent person to fearlessly put his head above the parapet. And you got to shoot that person down, right? right? Other, otherwise, others will right. follow. So he was a pioneer, and he took a whole lot of incoming. Um, but we all realized at the time that we would. This was not an act of particular courage on my part. We didn't, you know, suffer, most of us, any, any lifelong negative consequences. But we did understand that the ground we were staking out was a severe threat to the right who wanted to portray... Homosexuals as disruptive, um, crazy people, mm-hmm. as as basically what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'll think of it later. But you know, basically, as as a bunch of perverts and weirdos, and a gay left that wanted to use gay rights as a battering ram for a larger, more radical social agenda which we want to no know part of. So we were well aware that what we were setting out to do would be unpopular at the extremes. And we just sort of made a decision, you know what, it's going to be worth it. It has to be done. The alternatives are worse. Um, and most of us did just fine. It, it turns out that these threats from the far left and far right are a lot less scary than they look, especially, you know, we, we did have the advantage. There was no Twitter back then. Right. Um, and that slowed down the discussion in ways that gave our ideas time to sink in. Now, of course, you know, if you get on the wrong side of some of the radical gender ideologues, they're after you in minutes and your job can be lost the next day.
0: We didn't have that. Let's, di- let's dive into some of the terminology. Cause you, you just said the word radical gender ideologues and, and use a term in your piece, radical gender ideology. How would you define the difference between say a trans rights movement Sort of uh, trans civil rights movement and radical gender ideology. Do you see a distinction between those two? How, how would you define the distinction if you see one?
1: Yeah, I mentioned I try to be constructive in my writing. And I think the constructive thing I try to do in this particular article is ha- help clarify that distinction. So when I think of trans civil rights, I think of an agenda of helping the very small percentage of Americans who are transgender meaning they cannot flourish living in the gender role that would be their normal, their, their traditional, I don't know, whatever that's the word, natal uh, uh, biological sex, and creating a world that is compassionate toward them and fair toward them, but in ways that do not unduly impose on others. And that's going to require some compromises in a few difficult areas, like sports. That's a really hard one dealing with young people, really hard one. That involves medicine and science, and way more research needs to be done. But a lot of the things that are needed here aren't all that difficult. They're not sweeping at all. Um, it's not really that hard in most situations to arrange for a safe and dignified transgender person to be able to take a pee, for example. That's a very solvable problem. Um, pronouns. you know, some people want to use a different pronoun. We can live with that, right? And if some people refuse to use the right pronoun, we should regard that as impolite rather than as a form of violence. So I think a lot of what can be done, just in terms of helping everyone lead a, a dignified, flourishing life in America, it's just really not that hard. It's really not that sweeping. Radicalism is not necessary. In fact, it's not helpful. So I like to distinguish that, which is a kind of, kind of a, a, a emollient, um, pragmatic way of seeing things as being different from what some people call gender identity ideology. I call it radical gender ideology because I think it is radical. And the work I do in the piece is try to say that, you know, it's a mess. This thing is a conceptual mess. It's self-contradictory. People, different people say different things. But there are four common claims that, that I think um, are pretty, pretty definitive. The first is that trans women are women, and trans men are men, and there is no difference, full stop. The second is that human gender and sex, no, gender and sex are social constructions and are not binary, but on a continuum. So concepts like male and female are relative and subjective. The third is that gender and sex, again, both, are chosen identities and an individual's declared choice can never be doubted or challenged. In other words, if I say I'm male, I'm male, if I say I'm female, I'm female. And number four is that denying or disputing any of the above is violence. It's a violent form of transphobia. If you take those things together, they frame a radical and I think objectively false and illiberal and intolerant view of the world. And my claim in this article is that none of those is inherently part of a reasonable civil rights, civil equality, getting along agenda for trans people. They escaped from some laboratory in academia and they attached themselves parasitically to the transgender movement. And there they have stayed,
0: right? You know when I'm when I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about legal doctrine, for example, um, non-discrimination. So so now in Title Seven we have the we have the Bostock decision that says that sexual orientation and gender identity are encompassed within the word sex for purposes of employment non-discrimination law. And the reality is, I think for uh, an awful lot of people, let's just put aside for a moment justice. Gorsuch's textualism. Okay, let's just put that aside for a moment. So, for a lot of people, there's an instinctual sense of fairness and justice that is offended if you have, say, an employee. And I've written about this. You have an employee. Let's say they work at an insurance company, or they work uh, at uh, their waiter at a restaurant, or you name it. Normal job. And a person is trans, and they're doing their job well. They're doing their job well. There's no problems with their performance. They're customers like them, clients like them, they show up on time, they work hard, that if someone is fired simply because they are trans, there's no other reason to fire them, but because they're trans in the same way that, you know, in a race discrimination situation, someone would be fired simply because they're black or Asian or whatever, that that offends people's sort of innate sense of fairness that, um, similarly situated people should be treated alike. Um, they're, All of these employees, there's not a gender requirement for the job. Um, They're similarly situated in singling out this person because they're trans. That really does violate people's instinctive sense of fairness. I've talked to a number of people who are opposed even to non-discrimination laws, maybe even entirely on libertarian grounds. But they would say, I think that would be unfair, even if I don't think it should be illegal. But then there's something else. If the person is then if there, the argument is, um, well, wait a minute. Now the person, instead of um, serving pizza at a restaurant or selling insurance at an insurance agency, is getting in the pool to take an example of the Leah Thomas situation and swimming against people who have not gone through male puberty, for example. Then you have a situation where there's just irreducible biological differences. And and what's interesting is that non-discrimination law has always allowed for that in the sex discrimination realm. It's one of the reasons why sex distinctions, even under constitutional law, are subject to a lower level of scrutiny because there are irreducible biological differences between men and women, and laws always allowed for that. But as you're saying, radical gender ideology says there are no differences. Trans women are women period uh which see, it which is not only defined sort of biology but also define the historically different way in which we do treat sex distinctions uh and you're right it's does it is it is something that not only seems to be concocted in the academy but then sort of imposed from a top down cultural position which then brooks no dissent from that perspective at all well
1: Again, we saw this in the 1990s uh, and understood that what was going on from the left, uh, the radical left and their role in the, then as we called it, and lesbian rights movement, was what they were really targeting was the center and the possibility for social compromise. Um, They understood that if we were able to work out reasonable modus operandi, um, that that was not in their interest. So they wanted to take compromise off the table and target the center, as radicals always do. It's their business model. Okay. On some of the issues you name, the hard issues. I think the biggest of the hard issues, in terms of the number of people involved, are sports. You've also got some more specialized things. Right. You've got women's prisons. You've got you know the the masseur or masseuse who uh, who does not want to deal with male body parts. You know you've got some. Some really specialized, tricky things like that. But, but the big one is sports. And my view on that is that there's no one right answer. It's going to vary by the sport and by the community and by the level of sports. I mean, clearly uh, intramural high school sports are different from Olympic level sports. Um, and that debate should be decentralized and worked out through reasonable people trying to compromise. And neither trans people nor non-trans people will be happy 100% of the time. And that's life. That's how we live together. It's how we share the country. It won't always be fun. It won't always be easy. But it's doable. Well, the left and the right have a common interest in making that super hard. And the left's way of doing that <laughs> is saying, there's no discussion here. Leah Thomas is a woman. It is sexism and discrimination not to let her compete. That is unacceptable. Period. End of story. The right, on the other hand, wants to say it's biological birth, the whole transgender idea is a lie, and we need to pass bills, which some state legislatures are now taking up uh, and which Utah just passed, saying no person should ever be able to compete in a division that is not consistent with their natal biological assigned gender. Ever. Utah just did that. It breaks my heart because Utah is the site of the famous uh, religious liberty gay rights compromise in 2015. A landmark compromise that actually worked out the issue of how, at the state level, you square the claims of gay and lesbian and, and transgender rights with employment discrimination law and with religious liberty. It's a beautiful thing. So, that same state and some of those same people drank the Kool-Aid, and passed a law against transgender participation in sports, even though, according to the governor's veto message, the total number of transgender athletes in Utah is four, and the total number of male-to-female transgender athletes in Utah is one. 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 Yeah, that's what Governor Cox said in his veto message. Unfortunately, the legislature was getting ready to override his, his veto. So you see the same pattern here, right? Um, You see targeting the center to shut down the exact kinds of pragmatic conversations that we need to do to work this through.
0: You know, it's interesting. I keep going back to the sex discrimination context for, I think, some pretty instructive reasons. And one of them is this notion that does not exist in race discrimination, but does exist in a sex discrimination context called a BFOQ. Bonafide occupational qualification. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah,
1: important and context.
0: So we, yeah, which basically says, um, to oversimplify some complex complex body of law, that there are very specific areas where sex distinctions do matter, and they're not taken on a broad, uh, in a broad sweeping category, but they are taken in a. Uh, case by case, more case by case determination. A famous case involves, for example, um, women prison guards in a male prison. Should, should a male prison permit female prison guards? Um, and it strikes me that when you're talking about sports, that BFOQ analysis really could come in handy, um, especially not, not sweeping across all sports. But on a sport by sport basis, and I think what you'd end up finding is that the the biological sexual distinction, the biological distinction, really matters on sports that are speed, power, mass sports. In other words, the the those sports where those qualifications. So, for example, swimming is one of them. Power, um, an enormous amount of power involved in swimming, and if somebody's been through um, male puberty. They're gonna in the aggregate have some advantages in these speed power mass type sports. Um, all of that is dealt e- can be dealt with in this BFOQ kind of analysis that really does take things case by case um, or or literally sport by sport if you're gonna if you're gonna be talking about it like in that way. Whereas, as you're saying, the radical gender ideology cuts all of that off at the knees and says, What are you even? Why are you even having this conversation? Leah Thomas is a woman, um, and and that's where, you know, and I think that I I'm not even so much troubled about the existence of that as a conversation. We always have. We have radical ideologies around us all the time. Uh, The United States is one of the most comfortable places to live if you have a radical ideology. (laughs) You're you're protected by the First Amendment. You have a lot of institutional homes you can be a part of. I'm not super troubled by the existence of radical ideologies, but I think what troubles me about this is not as so much as its existence, but its relative cultural power um, and, and, and its ability to sort of um, the ability of the, the radical ideologues to inflict sort of concrete cultural harm on dissenters. Well, I would
1: concur with that if we add the important context that you also have the increasingly abusive use of political power on the right. Right. Uh, So you've got power being abused on both sides, and if you had to ask me to choose just one, I think I might be inclined to say that the right's increasing use of state power uh, and its resort to concepts like grooming and accusing all gay and lesbian and transgender people of being out to recruit children, which they're now actually saying, they are literally saying, this is the, the equivalent of the uh, blood libel for LGBT people, is that we are out to recruit and sexually abuse children. And that is what they are saying this is about. So if you don't mind my both-sidesing, the comment you make, <laughs> I, I agree with it. Um,
0: I'd also take it. Look, if we're not both sidesing at the dispatch, we're off brand. (laughs) So, So, but that's, yeah, that's exactly
1: the point. And I love the point about bona fide. So I I never know how to pronounce whether it's bona fide or bona fide. You're a lawyer. You should know.
0: I, you know, I've heard it every which way. Um, In the South, the way I most often hear it is bona fide. (laughs) <laughs> Which I and maybe that's maybe that's just my part of the uh, South where I grew up, but but uh, I've either heard it bona fide or bona fide. Or bona, bona oh, I'm going to go with or, bona
1: fide. That's yeah. an important point. The law of discrimination has always left exits and doors and some play in the joints for these difficult situations and. All of the anti-discrimination laws, people don't realize this, going right back to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, have, for example, exemptions like the famous Mrs. Murphy exemption for landlords. They're allowed to be racist if they're just renting out part of their house. Now, maybe not ideal, but it was just a way of dealing with the problem that was a big problem back then. So we have never had this absolutist standard that people imagine in their heads of anti-discrimination. And we shouldn't now.
0: Well, you you got it. You were moving on to my next part of the conversation because I wanted to talk about the radical gender ideology. I also wanted to talk about this really explosive increase that I've seen in just literally the last few days of the talking point that for just to make it very concrete, that if you are uh, for HB uh, 1557, Florida House Bill 1557, which is. Misleadingly called the "Don't Say Gay" bill, um, but it's problematic for other reasons, in my view. That if you're against this bill, um, you're uh, a groomer or a friend of groomers, <laughs> and and if you think I'm, uh, the, here here's the here's the um, here's the spokesperson for Governor DeSantis, a, a woman named Christina Pushaw or Pushaw, I don't know. We'll we'll have to figure out how to pronounce her last name at the same time. We figure out how to pronounce bona fide. but she says, if you're against the anti grooming bill, you are probably a groomer, or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight year old children. Silence is complicity. This is how it works. Democrats. And I didn't make the rules. Um, a couple of things on this. can can Let's just get it right out there for those who've not followed the flagship podcast of the Dispatch Podcast Network, known as Advisory Opinions, where my colleague Sarah Isger and, and I talk about all things legal. Every time you hear a talking point about the Florida law that says it's confined to dealing with education of four- to eight-year-olds, the person saying that is either ignorant of the law or lying to you, It the law sweeps through K-12 through education in, uh, to ban education that is deemed to be not age appropriate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, I I just wanted to read that to you. And, and it seems to me, John, what's happening and, and look, uh, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to, and, and I don't want to come to this conclusion because it's awful. It's awful, but it's hard for me to, to, Dis, it's getting harder for me to dismiss the idea that what's happening is that some segment of the right-wing world is actually now starting to pander to either a QAnon or QAnon-Curious base. Um, I don't know. Is that is that too much to say? Well, I would defer to you because you're much
1: closer to right-wing land than I am. Uh, you live in a in a very red area. And if that's what you sense is going on, then uh, it wouldn't altogether surprise me. Um, I don't think that's the only thing going on.
0: No. Another no,
1: thing so either. going on is good old-fashioned homophobia. Right. As I mentioned, the idea—okay, let, let's, let's be clear about terminology. This word grooming, what that refers to is the sexual abuse of children. Uh, That's what we're talking about. So, what's happening here is that this person in Florida, whose name we can't pronounce, is saying that anyone who disagrees with this law, which punishes instruction or, according to the preamble to the law, discussion, yes, it's still in there. The word discussion is there. It penalizes discussion of sexual orientation or gender ideology. For people grades one through three, or in an inappropriate way at any level, we can have an argument about that. It's a crummy law, but what this person is saying is if you disagree with this law, you are complicit in the sexual abuse of children. They might as well be saying, if you don't share my views on the Israel-Palestine conflict, you are in favor of slaughtering and drinking the blood of Christian babies. That's the level of what we're talking about here. And this is, as I said, the ancient blood libel against gay people, and they're going back to it. And they're going back to it because, like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, it's very effective. Um, QAnon, as we know, has some roots and some similarities with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That's a famous anti-Semitic tract that was whipped up by some czarist propagandists and passed off as, as supposedly the Jewish plot to take over the world. So yeah, I think we're, we're seeing, if not inspiration directly from QAnon, we're seeing leakage, common roots in these campaigns.
0: Yeah, you know, the, the, the thing that's so, um, and, and there's, another, there's another, I'm glad you brought up what, the, there, grooming is not a word that means anything that we want it to mean, right? grooming is a word that has a really specific meaning in the, in the world of sex abuse. And just to, just to sort of say what it actually means. I'm looking at this, um, uh, organization called, uh, RAIN, which is the rape abuse Insta- incest and national network. And it has a warning signs. And what grooming is, is actually an intentionally directed individualized process that has some very specific forms. Like there's a there is victim selection. There is, uh, an so you, you locate and you identify a person. You isolate the victim. In other words, you start to um, separate them out and to isolate them from others. You create a pattern of trust development and keeping of secrets. Um, and then you start to move towards a desensitization to touch or discussion of sexual ideas. And then you finally sort of, as you you know as the grooming continues you're you're you're, uh normalizing all of this behavior is completely natural and normal and and the reason why i highlight this is because my my wife and i have done some have been li- literally spending more than a year looking at a lot of uh some sex abuse at a huge christian camp called Kanaka camps one of the biggest christian camps in the world and they have had one of the worst they had one of the worst sex predation scandals that you've never heard of. <laughs> and the cornerstone of it was this extraordinarily charismatic guy who engaged in grooming on a large scale with lots of different young people and committed. I mean, there's no other way to say it, but you know, child rape at a large scale. And so this is a word with a real meaning. This is a word that is ha- that, that it's meaning is, imp- is important to, to preserve Okay, as a distinct phenomenon, and is now being thrown around as a blanket slur fr- against anyone who opposes a an extremely poorly written, overbroad um, law that's highly likely to be struck down in federal court. Is that would that make a judge who strikes it down a groomer? <laughs> um, and and here's what really gets me, John, is that. Okay, all of the blue checks who are using this phrase from the Christina Poushaw or all of the articles you're reading in right wing media that use this phrase, they're in on I'm not going to call it the joke. They're in on the scam here. They know what they're doing. This is they're redefining the term groomer to score political points online. But a lot of people who are reading this read and hear words like groomer or pedophile, or you name it, and apply the conventional and standard meaning of those terms, right? That's why it has that power, is it has a conventional meaning that, that impacts with a person's view of the world. And not only is it blood libel, as you're saying, it's dangerous. It is actually dangerous. I mean, Remember it's not we're not that long removed from a guy going to this Comet Ping Pong pizza or whatever it was called armed with I believe an AR15 to investigate the existence of a lot an alleged child sex ring in this pizzagate nonsense. But you're you're telling people that their opponents are groomers. Um, I'm worried about I'm uh, frankly I'm worried about that triggering um Greater, even more, uh, even worse atmosphere of threats and an even worse atmosphere of violence, political violence in this country.
1: Well, I am too. Um, I was one of those who was kind of poo pooed violence after the election. Um, you were right, David. I was wrong. So I'm worried about that. Um, I'm worried about hearing the new conservative talking point that Disney is involved in grooming kids, uh, converting them. Um, I am now reading from a prominent conservative writer, columnist, I guess, who I won't name that the Biden administration has put regulations in place that have laid the groundwork for the government to seize children from their parents and force them through sex change, medical sex change. Now, this is almost too crazy to talk about, except people are talking about it. I'm not happy about any of that, though I, I guess I would say one advantage or maybe disadvantage of being a 61-year-old homosexual in America is we have heard it before. Nothing new here, because I've been hearing it since the 1970s. And I guess like anti-Semitism, that kind of stuff will pop up forever. And and, and the role that we need to play is, is just to try to contain it as best we can. And it's a bit shocking when a spokesman for the Florida governor picks it up. But I also remind you in terms of the Florida bill that in the actual operation of the thing, when we're not talking about hysterical people and opportunistic people who are using the blood libel, we are talking about does a teacher or a school get sued if um, in the classroom a student mentions having two moms or two dads and the teacher tries to explain that not clear. Um, Could well get someone in serious trouble. Um, There's no age restriction in this bill. We're going to have to find out how the atmosphere in schools and their ability to do their job is, is going to change. When I see a overly vague bill I often suspect maybe it's overly vague on purpose. Maybe it doesn't want to set precise boundaries. Maybe the chilling effect is the point.
0: Well, and we're seeing this, I mean, um, again, we just, we just want all the smoke in, in this podcast. We're <laughs> seeing this in the anti-CRT, in the anti-CRT bills. So, and this is something I was talking about for a long time. These bills were very broad and they were very vague. And, when you criticize the bill as being very broad and very vague, you were told consistently that you're complicit in critical race theory, that you are, you want children to be indoctrinated into horrible and, and awful race essentialism. And that you're just standing there going, no, wait a minute. I've seen this before. It was called a university speech code, right? And I've, I've seen these university speech codes, And broad and vague speech restrictions always end up being abused. And they always end up being abused in a very specific way, which is you start to calibrate acceptable speech to your subjective feelings. And the perfect example of this is coming from my own community, where a coalition of parents under the name Moms for Liberty, ironically enough has filed a complaint with our Department of Education trying to get rid of the book Ruby Bridges Goes to School from the Young Elementary Curriculum. Uh, Another book, Martin Luther King Goes to Washington. Now, I thought uh, everyone was in favor of the Martin Luther King uh, Washington speech. Also, they object to the inclusion in one of the books of the Norman Rockwell painting, The Thing We All Live With, which is a, a painting of Ruby Bridges desegregating schools. As for context, and, Ruby Bridge is a young African-American girl who was right. a school desegregator. Right. And so you bring that up and you raise that and you say, see, look, this is what's happening. And nobody says, oh, well, you're right. That If someone reads the bill and thinks that they should object to that, then maybe we drafted the bill poorly. No, what the attitude is, well, you know, is either don't talk about it, shut up, and don't use these examples, or well, you know, there's just a message being sent and that parents are fed up and they're not going to take this anymore. And so, what if a few parents go too far? Um, Which is, again, it's all coming, it's exactly the kind of argument that I experienced time and again in the late 90s and early 2000s, taking on university speech codes where ah, you know, so what if there are some excesses? That's the price you have to pay for cleansing the public square of these bad ideas. And it's flipping around into um, the world of right-wing legislation at scale. And it's, it's really interesting the way in which rather than justifying uh, the legislation by reference to specific issues, questions about the legislation are fended off with insults. Groomer, pedo pedosympathetic, whatever you want to call it. And, and, uh, it's an extraordinary development, but I guess if you take the whole big sweep of American history and our view of free speech in American history, these kinds of things just keep coming back again and again and again. Well,
1: and they always will. Uh, what's been interesting to me as a longtime student of, of free speech issues, wrote my first book about it in 1993 is the way these issues ping-pong back and forth between the far left and the far right. Isn't it interesting that the principle that's being used now by anti-CRT bills and others on the right is to protect uh, children from unsafe ideas and from feeling uncomfortable? Yeah. And didn't the legislature, I don't know if they passed it, but didn't they introduce a bill somewhere that would ban... Uh, exposing students to ideas that might make them uncomfortable or feel unsafe, and that was coming from the right. But of course, that originates in the safe space movement, the emotional safetyism movement we see in universities on the left, where students have massive protests because telling them that uh, they're on their own um, for their taste in Halloween costumes is traumatizing. So no, there's no end to it. No, I would like to know. <laughs> I would like to know if. I mean, what are the grounds on which someone objects to
0: Ruby Bridges goes to school? What are they like? What are they claiming is the problem with that? Unfortunately, I know chapter and verse because I've read the complaint more than once. And it essentially boils down to the, the materials consistently show angry white parents. So, These are there are pictures of Ruby Bridges desegregating the schools, and of course she's surrounded by U.S. marshals. Which, by the way, can you imagine the courage of a very young girl being having to to walk to school surrounded by federal marshals, surrounded by screaming, angry parents? But the argument is, well, these things show essentially show white people as exclusively angry uh, at Ruby Bridges, and. Now, these are pictures of history. They're pictures. And then Norman Rockwell's painting has the N-word on it, um, which was used liberally to describe Ruby Bridges. And so they say, well, you can't expose children to the N-word in that context. And so the argument is, well, it's CRT, because remember, this is an anti-CRT bill they're, they're complaining under. The argument is that it's CRT, Because the actual depictions of history are weighted against the white people in the South. And just articulating it, you realize it's ridiculous, right? Or just articulating it, you realize it's ridiculous. But this is what CRT has become to people is anything I don't like about race and anything I hear that I don't like about race sort of from the left. Well, that's CRT. Um, And in fact, this is quite intentional. You know, Chris Rufo, who is one of the architects of this anti-CRT program, has talked about sort of taking CRT and using it as a proxy for anything you hear that you subjectively think is weird or off or bad, then that becomes CRT. And so it raises a permission uh, structure for people who are offended basically on almost any basis on a matter of race to wave the flag, the CRT flag and say, that's CRT. We need to, we need to block that. We need to stop that in our schools.
1: That is the, the account you just gave me, David is so preposterous. I reacted the way you did as you recited it. I thought, really? Is yeah. that, is that serious? Can someone put forward that claim with a straight face?
0: Well, and the other thing that ends up happening here, um, not to use, um, Jonah's podcast and, and your guest spot for my monologuing. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Serves Jonah right. (laughs) That's exactly right. The other thing that's happening here is we have an atmosphere where thanks to social media, I can learn immediately of every outrage that the other side commits. So I have extreme awareness of every single thing that has happened around the country, not every single, but a lot of things that have happened around the country that are truly bad. I mean, there are places where say a third grader or whatever, a second grader is being taught that there's something inherently wrong with whiteness or whatever. And so then here I am sitting in my local community where none of this is happening, but I want to draw the line in the sand right here and now. And then what ends up happening is I start, I, you draw the line in the sand and you're not drawing the line at the sand at radical and CRT. You start, you end up drawing the line at the sand against honest discussions of race in Ruby Bridges goes to school. Ruby Bridges goes to school. Exactly. Let me ask you this. We're starting to starting to run out of time, but, um, you have written a lot over the years about the atmos- the climate of free speech on campus. Um, fact, you right before in the green room, what we call like talking before the podcast, you, you raised a an issue at Emory um, that is you know, sort of the latest in the campus free speech wars. Do you feel like you're in a position to say, "Here is my general assessment of where the campus free speech wars are." Have we? I think these these uh, the sort of waves of campus censorship, like waves of censorship on the larger culture, ebb and flow. Are we ebbing? Are we flowing? <laughs> are we rising? Are we falling? What's your what's your assessment of the state of free speech on campus?
1: I'm going to kind of waffle and say, ask me in five years. I think okay. if you ask our friend Greg Lukianov, he'll say it's getting worse. Right, and he'll have plenty of data for that. Uh, he's at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and he'll point to the hundreds of cases of professors being disciplined um, in the wake of uh, campaigns to cancel or silence them. And he will point out, I point on which he's simply right, that the nature of the problem on campus has migrated away from formal speech codes, though those are still around and they're still a problem, but migrated away from that to social environments that are chilling and coercive. Increasingly, what I'm hearing from from professors, including progressive professors is that they can't get their students to speak in class because students are worried about being called out on social media saying something wrong and remember we were talking about over-inclusivity in all of these laws and censorship regimes and that's true on campus as well you never know what you might say that could trigger a campaign against you on social media or the finger snapping or the eye rolling or the report for creating an unsafe space you don't know that if you're a professor you don't know if know that if you're a student. And that's deliberate. They don't want you to know that because they want you to police yourself and over police yourself. They want you to be frightened. So this looks a little bit more like a McCarthyism period kind of problem where people are self-censoring in order to stay out of trouble and don't know where the boundaries are. And that's a harder problem to deal with. I was just at a I won't say which, but a famous nationally uh distinguished university that that You've all heard of um, that brought me in to talk about this. And uh, one of the deans said, There's so much self censorship going on on campus that we're even self censoring conversations about the self censorship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the bad news. And I would agree with Greg on all of that. The reason I said, Ask me in five years is I think maybe could go either way, but I think we're in one of those inflection moments. Where more people, including especially progressives on campus, are realizing that they're in a toxic and chilled environment, and they don't like it. The students don't like chilled classrooms. Professors don't like chilled classrooms. No one likes being in an environment where you have no idea what you say that might get you in trouble. Might be saying Halloween costumes, you know, work that out amongst yourself, students. That shouldn't be controversial, but it was. Um, There's increasing realization among faculty that academic freedom is a real issue here and that what's often being targeted is academic freedom. I just noticed that the student paper at Emory has proposed that there should be a formal body of elected officers of students and professors who should be required to pre-approve any mentions of slurs in the classroom. So, for example, if it's a law class and I'm teaching Westboro Baptist Church free speech and their signs and chants said, God hates fags, I would not be able to teach that without going to a tribunal, (laughs) pleading my case, and having them clear it. Um, People are realizing this is inimical to academic freedom. And so I'm starting to see more will being mustered in the academic world to push back. And I don't think it's it's gelled yet to the point where we can say it's going to succeed organizationally. But I think we are seeing eyes opening to how perilous this situation is. And unlike some people, I think academia still has deep reservoirs of integrity of people who are there to study and learn and teach in a broad and diverse way and not to be afraid. And the question now, I think the, the inflection point we're at Or is that silent majority, which clearly is a majority on campus, capable of mobilizing to push back against the actually relatively small numbers of activists who are dominating and chilling the conversation? I'm sorry for the long answer, but.
0: No, that's, no, that's a great answer. It's, it's right. It's where I think we are. And here is the, here's the good, let me start with my assessment of the good news. 20-plus years of litigation means that the formal structures that university use, universities used for a long time to censor speech on campus are either largely gone. So, for example, we went from, by FIRE's ranking, about 75% of universities that had at least one policy that clearly prohibited constitutionally protected speech to maybe a quarter of universities have speech codes, and they're not enforced. So the, The there is the formal legal mechanisms for punishing, quote unquote, bad speech have been largely swept away. The bad news is we swept them away right as peer (laughs) chilling and peer sort of censorship rose. But what that means, I think, is if we can get through this wave of the peer censorship that, as you correctly note, makes people miserable it makes people miserable then we can perhaps move into an era of however long it lasts i don't know because the the battle over liberty never really stops where there is both a relaxation of peer peer sort of chilling and the absence of formal university policies that chill speech um so i, I but i kind of feel like the you know the the uh you know, the horse with the carrot. That's just right. Always out of reach. It's <laughs> right. So right. When we think we've gotten rid of the formal legal structures uprises peer censorship. And then when peer chilling maybe recedes or some of these formal legal structures going to start rearing, I mean, who knows, but I think your analysis is, is spot on. It is peer centered now it, that it is profoundly chilling and people are very miserable about it. And it's a minority. Um, I was just at a conference uh, a few days ago of campus administrators. And for the first time that I've ever been to a conference of campus administrators talking about speech, I did not hear one, not one person articulate that there should be formal legal restrictions on constitutionally protected speech. And in fact, I heard multiple people say we have, and these are people on the left, we have a problem with the left censoring speech. So. This is a dawning awareness. It's it's. That's definitely- exactly
1: what I'm encountering. And that last bit, that the left has become alarmed, that's super important, because yeah. as long as this problem was perceived as a problem that, you know, federalist society, conservatives have on campus, it was easy to say, well, that's, that's their problem. But now that we are routinely seeing progressive professors who are being dragged in front of tribunals and... Uh, uh, having pressure on them to be fired or punished. Uh, this, you know, there's there's nothing like having your own ox gourd to make you think twice. But it's it's not altogether cynical. There is still a spirit of inquiry. And a lot of this is among students. As students are telling pollsters they don't like this environment. They're telling... Um, Liberal students, progressive students are saying that they wish they could encounter more conservative viewpoints on campus. They're saying that in surveys, and I just heard one say it last week at a university. So the question now is is can these still inchoate disorganized desires to change things? can they be mobilized? And, and there I think, a large part of the answer, not the only part, but a large part is down to leadership at the top of some of these universities to begin stating their values more clearly, framing expectations for incoming students about what does and doesn't go. Um, they don't know what the First Amendment says when they walk into, into university. They have no idea. No one's told them. Well, no wonder they think hate speech is unconstitutional and a safe space is guaranteed. So there's that. But on your other point, the sense of, of sort of do we ever get ahead of this game? Whenever I can, I I try to remind people that the idea that speech that is offensive, bigoted, wrongheaded, heretical, blasphemous, or just stupid, that that kind of speech should not only be tolerated, but actually protected by the government is the single craziest, most counterintuitive social idea of all time, bar none, <laughs> redeemed only by the fact that it is also the single most successful yeah. social idea of all time, bar none. It gives us knowledge, it gives us peace, it gives us freedom. But that means people like you and me and Greg and and your children and their children and their children will just have to get up every morning for the rest of their lives and explain it all over from scratch. And we just have to be <laughs> cheerful about that, yeah,
0: because we can do it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I. Uh... I like the way the pseudonymous writer, Scott Alexander, he used to have a, a blog called Slate Star Codex that some people had heard about, but he described liberalism as almost like an alien machinery attuned for the purpose of avoiding civil war, that after the wars of religion that devastated the European continent, um, we had to figure out a way to get, keep Catholics and Protestants from slaughtering each other. And this this machinery of small l liberalism, this ability uh, to engage in discourse rather than sort of uh, cross swords, it isn't utopian because the discourse can get rough, and it's always going to be rough. So it's not utopian. It's not like a coexist bumper sticker, right? It's rough. It's hard. Um, but this is the way. This is the way we have figured out to create a pluralistic society. It's the way. And there's no other, we've not found one and <laughs> we've not found one. And when you explain, and what I found is when you explain that to students, you can see the light come on. You can see the light come on. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, but at the same time, if you're going to be committed to civil liberties, and I say this to law students all the time, and I used to not really fully comprehend this, prepare to be constantly periodically unpopular and not always from the predictable side um there there was a time when my free speech advocacy meant that i i i could barely walk into church with, without people saying ad a boy and then those days are long over john those days are long <laughs> over um so you have to well, prepare we have a lot of be, fair
1: weather friends in our business that's oh gosh
0: yeah that's absolutely. for sure Absolutely
1: comes with the territory. And, you know, I would also put some of it on us because folks like you and me, um, we do a pretty good job on the negative Liberty side of the equation. And, you know, John Stuart Mill and saying how, how bad things get if we don't have freedom of speech. I don't think we always do as well as we should have at, at going on offense and touting Hmm. the absolute miracles of knowledge and human thriving. that our regime has made possible. True. Um, I think we should sound less defensive and more proud of everything from the vaccine that's protecting me from COVID right now to the entire structure of higher education in America, still the crown glory of American civil society, despite everything that's happened, the establishment of science, the, the ending of the wars that generations and generations of people all across the world took for granted. This is a miraculously positive system, and it is especially good for minorities. Um, Ask John Lewis, Martin Luther King. Frederick um, Douglass. Frederick Douglass.
0: Yep. He called free speech the great moral renovator of society and government.
1: Absolutely. Ask Frank Kameny, the greatest gay civil rights leader, who all he had was his arguments, his tongue. And he only got that in 1958 when the Supreme Court overturned restrictions on Uh, obscenity laws that had muzzled gay and lesbian writers and thinkers and speakers. And that's my story. We won marriage because again and again, we were able to make this case when people said that we were haters and that we were, you know, recruiting children and all the rest of it. And it's just as true for trans people now. Um, So we need to be better at making the positive case. The case for free speech and free thought is a case for social justice. It is a case for the advancement of knowledge and the extinction of ignorance.
0: Well, we'll I'll we'll, we'll end on an uh, an amen to that and with this quote that I've never forgotten. I was talking to um Walter Fontroy who was one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus and a key civil rights leader back when Dr. King was marching and I remember asking him you know we've of course we still have a long way to go on race in the United States but we did go through a period of time in the 50s and in the early 60s of remarkably rapid legal reform that overturned literally centuries of legalized bigotry defended by violence and i asked him to what did he attribute the rapid change and i'll never forget his answer he said almighty god and the first amendment <laughs> he said the first amendment gave us the ability to speak and almighty god softened men's hearts and i've used that quote ever since for those who have fallen under what is i think the misapprehension that somehow free speech hurts marginalized people rather than is the greatest gift to marginalized people historically that our constitutional system has had to offer so um yeah let's we've had kind of a grim podcast let's end on a an a, <laughs> a a more uplifting note so Thanks so much, uh, John, for joining me again on the Remnant. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm always eager to talk with you, and you're no Jonah Goldberg, but you're pretty good.
0: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take. it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's thank a you, pleasure listeners. To be with you. Thank you, listeners, for hanging with us when there's no Jonah. We really appreciate it. Um, and check back later in the week. There will be more Remnant with Jonah, and as you know, always. Please check out thedispatch.com and I've got to end the way Jonah is. We'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.